It's good to be here this morning. It's good to uh, start our, our, near, our new year off thinking about the Lord, praising Him, thinking about how worthy He is. So thanks, um, Van, that uh, leading us into that. And I uh, kind of thought about how do we start off the year? I thought, hey, let's have our best year ever. What do you say? Who's up for that? All right. Okay. Now, I don't know what you're thinking about when I might say, let's have our best year ever. <clears throat> I kind of thought about a couple different things that people might be thinking, like, what would make this a really, really good year? Like, let's say inflation was cut in half, interest rates were cut in half, and our national debt was cut in half. That's yeah, not going to happen. Okay. Um, how about something like, oh, this is really obvious. Like, this year, finally, the Broncos get a franchise quarterback. Huh? Okay. All right. Sorry about those who like Russell Wilson. Sorry. Um, oh, you know what? This would be a great year. Some new candidate emerges that's a better candidate than Biden and Trump, and she wins the election. Okay. So I thought, um, actually, when you think about kind of like processing what you would like to see happen in a new year, whether you go down the road of New Year's resolutions or not, I thought, you know, let's start it off with looking at um, some biblical direction, biblical guidance for what that could look like. One of my favorite passages comes out of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And in this passage, what we're going to see is um, God uses Jeremiah to clarify for people, the people of God, really what's most important. Because there's a tendency to, to emphasize the things that really are not so critical, are not so important, that we really emphasize. And so, up on the screen, you'll see Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, and it says like this. It says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Now, that's not to say that wisdom, especially godly wisdom, is not important. It actually, you know, it's very important. But this is speaking more of like growing in knowledge, and that's good, but it's not the most important thing. Then he goes on to say, and let not a mighty man boast in his might. If you consider what probably is the most prominent, number one, uh, New Year's resolutions that people have when they start off a new year, what is it? It's going to the gym, better diet, exercise becoming stronger, so we get consumed with kind of a, the exterior, the outside, our bodies, right? And we're reminded in this passage, that's not the most important thing. And then he says this, let not the rich man boast in his riches. This may be a year where you kind of go, okay, we need to really get our finances in order. We need to, to work on our stewardship and, and our, our budgeting and, and do a better job of that. Things are tightening, right? It's a little more difficult to make ends meet. And so let's really think about that. And that's good and important, but it's not the best thing. As a matter of fact, we begin to understand what the best thing is what he says next. So let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me. Hear that? 
the Lord says, the best thing that we can go after is that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord that practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, what is interesting is in the Old Testament, we, we're familiar oftentimes with this, this, this aspect of, of God seems to be distant. And in that passage, it reminds us that God is near. But there's something that takes place when someone begins to understand and know God better. They begin to discover what he is like, for I delight in these things. But in fact, when Jesus comes to this planet, he ups the ante. He communicates something that is really beyond the comprehension of anyone beforehand. He will call his, he will call God his father, invite us to call him father. He will invite us into a deep relationship with him, an intimate relationship with him. He will invite us, this is what's amazing, to become like him, to become like Jesus, to take on those things that he cares deeply about the things that he delights in. What if this is the year that you develop a deeper relationship with God? What if this is the year where it's not just an occasional time with the Lord? It's not an occasional time in his word and in prayer. But this becomes a pattern of your life. This becomes who you are. Well, that is the theme of our year. That's the theme and the vision we have for redemption this year. Redemption 2024, this is what we're after. Abiding in Christ through his word and prayer. That will be constantly our prayer for every one of us. That we will deepen our relationship with God. So what does that look like? You've, we've already sung this idea of abiding. Well, if you turn, to, if you would, to with me to John chapter 15, 1 through 17. This is, if you've been around, a, not an unfamiliar passage. Uh, we have spoken on this a number of times throughout the last several years. But what it does is it reminds us again. It gives us kind of this, this perspective of what it really looks like. And so let's open to John chapter 15 read 1 through 17. Uh, we read out of, the, out of the ESV, and if you do not have an ESV and you want to, there's, there's other Bibles underneath and sometimes sitting on, on uh, chairs as well. So here we go. Let's read. Jesus says, and he is speaking to his, specifically his apostles, the 11 now. And he says in, verse, in chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you so that you will love one another. You join me in prayer. Father, we come to you uh, this morning, having already sung about the, the incredible privilege it is and our need to depend upon you, the opportunity that, God, we would be in relationship with the God of this universe, the one who has made us, the one who knows us. God, you have declared that for every one of us, the number of our hair, hairs on our head are known. That for every one of us, God, you know a thought before it ever enters in our minds. You know us intimately. God, we can declare as those who belong to you that you love us dearly. You have revealed yourself to us. You've made us yours. We belong to you. And that, Father, you have a purpose. In our, for our lives. I'd ask, Father, again, as we unpack this passage, God, that you would speak clearly, you would speak lovingly, you would speak where it needs to take place firmly into each one of our hearts and minds, Father, to know what you have called us to, What an incredible privilege, Father, for us to know you because of what your Son has done for us. Help us know what that looks like for each one of us this year. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you are looking at a hard copy Bible, because I realize a lot of people do it through their phones, whatever, 
it's a little bit easier to see in, in a Bible like this that, it, especially if it's red letters like mine, like, well, this is like all of Jesus talking, right? If you go back to beginning of chapter 13 in the, in the Gospel of John, you will see 13 through 17 is kind of like this one event in which multiple things take place, and Jesus is, is sharing and doing things and teaching. It is actually the feast of the Passover. We know it by the Last Supper. It is the night that Jesus is going to get betrayed. And so he starts off washing his disciples' feet. And in that, there's this aspect of, I'm going to show you the full extent of my love, and he does that. And we move to the meal itself, where there's all kinds of events that take place, including the... the the acknowledgement that someone will betray him, but then all of them would walk away. Jesus will talk then about how he's going to go away, and it's actually better for them if he would go away. They're troubled by that, going, okay, if you're going to go away, this is not good. We want to come with you. Oh, no, no, no. I'll come back for you eventually. But then there's this really struggle about who Jesus is, and if you know Jesus, you know the Father, and he promises the Holy Spirit to be his helper. And you can imagine this whole idea of like, okay, you have called us. You have called us to be your followers and to, to do the things that disciples are called to do, but you're going to go away? And so he presents this idea of like, this is what it's going to look like until he returns for all of us. This invitation that we can continue to know him and be his followers. All right, so he talks about this idea of abiding. Now, this would be a very familiar analogy when he talks about a true vine and a vine dresser and things like that because that people would see in Israel this, this idea of a vine and things growing off a of vine. So that would be very natural. And, of course, they would, they would immediately know that to abide, of course, for, for a branch to bear fruit, it has to be stuck in the vine. It has to remain in the vine. It has to be connected to the vine and stay there. And so that's a very familiar idea for them. Maybe not so much for, for you and me, but, but he's going to dig right into it. So that's what this whole idea of about abiding has to do with. And so we're going to look at three aspects of abiding. The first place we're going to go is how this passage talks about how abiding fulfills God's design, okay? Here we go. Let's dig in. As a matter of fact, we're going to spend most of our time talking about this. But where, where we're going to start is at the, almost like the very end. So if you go back all the way to the very end, the, the next to last verse that I read, look at verse 16, because this gives us the picture of what God's design is for abiding. He says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that. It's telling us why. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The point he's making is this. We are designed to produce lasting fruit, forever fruit, eternal fruit, that's the kind of life that Jesus has called us to. We've been chosen and appointed to make eternal impact. Do you hear that? That's what God has called every one of us 
in this room too to make eternal impact. So I kind of put up on the screen there, you'll notice that in the green, that remain, we think about the word abide, we don't always kind of like process what that looks like. But another definition of it, another translation of it is the idea of remaining, to continue, right? And so when he talks about that your fruit should abide, remain, continue, it's going to go on forever. So that does challenge us, doesn't it? Because what do we set our lives to? What do we set our attention to? The things that last but for a moment? Or do we give ourselves to the things that will last forever? In Scripture, there's many references to the brevity of life here on this planet. But you know what? Our lives can and is designed, are designed to make eternal impact. Isn't that cool? All right, so if you notice on your, up on the screen, on the right side, I've got these things about fruit, right? Everybody see those? No fruit, some fruit, more fruit, much fruit, okay? That was kind of fun. That's because each one of these are listed in this passage, and so we got to start with no fruit because that's where this starts. But also, this is foundational for everybody because this is all of us where we start. At some point in time, you know, coming through this passage, I want us to kind of look and ask honestly, Lord, which of those truly represents my life? But let's start off with this idea of no fruit. Look at verse 2. This is what he says. Um, I'm going to start, I'm going to read one as well, just to give us a, a background. I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. And he says in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Let's stop right there. There are people in this world who do not bear fruit. Well, that's kind of a natural thought, right? Of course. So what does this mean to not bear fruit? What does that look like? It means to to live a natural life. It means to not reflect a transformed life. It's to be, remain unchanged. Now, that doesn't mean that, okay, when you think about Christians and non-Christians, Christians are always better people than non-Christians. There's a lot of really, really good non-Christians that are probably a lot better people than me. That's not the point. You see, we have this kind of um, on-the-surface external viewpoint. We don't see the things the way God sees them. But God looks down upon every person and says, is this person mine? They need to be bearing fruit. If this person does not bear fruit, they are not mine. Now here's the reality. There are some questions that are raised by this this little section here, right? Because it says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, he's going to go on and on, but then he comes back to this idea in verse 6. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. So it's like a parallel statement because this is the concept that we're supposed to walk away with. These two concepts are inseparable. To abide in Christ will always cause someone to bear fruit. And if you're bearing in fruit, if you're bearing any fruit, you're abiding in Christ. Those two are inseparable. 
So that's why he says it one way, every, that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he says in verse 6, then those who do not abide me. It's the same person. And then it goes on to say this. In verse 2, it's this idea that he takes them away. But in verse 6, it says that they are thrown away like a branch and wither, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. What does that sound like? It's, it is what it sounds like. Jesus is saying those who do not bear fruit, those who are no fruit lives, apart from changing that condition and coming to trust in Christ, their destiny is eternal judgment away from God. That's what it says. That's why I said we got to start right there because it's so important to, to understand that. Now, that does raise some theological questions for us, doesn't it? There's two sides of that coin because in verse 6, every branch in me, does that mean that if someone is in him, then they can lose their salvation? Is that what that means? Or is it a case where someone is really not in him? Okay, so let's, let's unpack that for a moment because it's really important for us to get. You see, what God promises just a few chapters earlier, John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There is an assurance. So then what is going on in this passage here? What is this referring to? Well, there's a very important cue in this. You see, when he says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser, those who understand um, symbols, okay, and this analogy are going to pick up on this, that the nation of Israel is often referred to as like a vine, like an olive branch, things like that. And on the external, on the appearance, the people of God, Israel, it looks like all of them belong to God, right? But we know they don't. And the reality is this. Jesus is saying there are people who, on the outside, look like they belong to me. And that will continue to be the case. In the church, there are people who, externally, on the outside, look like they belong to me. But in fact, they've never produced fruit and they're not mine. That's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? Especially for those of us who maybe, maybe have children or family members or close friends who have at one point in time made some type of acknowledgement of their faith, maybe even have been baptized. I point over here, this is where we get, do our baptism but there's never been any fruit. That should be sobering. Maybe that's even you. As you look at your own life, you're going, has there been actually ever fruit in my life? So this is kind of what I want to say. I want to remind you of this. You see, good works, being a good person, um, having a great amount of fruit, is not a requirement 
for salvation. But it always is a result of salvation. Do you hear me? Do you hear me saying that? It's never a requirement for salvation, but it is always a result of salvation. It's a changed life. A changed life. That's why I wanted to start right here because as sobering as it is, it's the thoughts that we need to have is to stop, pause, and kind of go, have I really trusted Christ as my Savior or not? Have I repented of my sin and acknowledged my need for him so that now I'm abiding in him? I just want to stop and pray. Let's do that right now. Father, would you prompt anyone in this room who's honestly looking at their lives and wondering if there's any fruit to examine if they trusted you or not. And God, for any of us who know somebody, that we're wrongly making an assumption because of something that was said years ago, but there has been no fruit. God, that you would stir within us to press in, to ask those difficult questions, to have those conversations, to present again the saving work of Christ and the message of the gospel. If we need to do that, either one of those things, God, would you press upon us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As Christians, um, we can tend to go one way or the other. We can tend to be really, really tough on ourselves. And we can really be too light on ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves with that question. All right. Let's move on. Let's talk about some fruit, okay? So this is what happens next is that in verse 2, he then goes on to say, um, he says, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Okay, all right. So notice how he puts those two right smack together. If you are abiding in Christ, you're going to make some fruit. And. You're going to get pruned. Pruned? You're going to get pruned. That's right. As a matter of fact, this is a promise of God for everybody. Every branch, every branch, every branch that produces fruit is going to get pruned. Now, when you think about the best year ever, aren't you looking forward to getting pruned this year? Okay? Right? That's what he says will happen. That's the promise. That's the design that God has. Now, I didn't know much about pruning until my, I met my wife, okay? She's a phenomenal gardener, so she loves pruning and doing things like that and making the, a garden produce what it's supposed to do. And I remember one time her, she talking about deadheads, and I'm like, you mean like groupies for the, the Grateful Dead? And I'm like, what is this? Okay, there's some people who get it. Thank you very much. My generation. Here we go. So anyway, and then she goes, no, that's that, that little flower thing that's kind of dead. You got to pop off or whatever. And so, I, yeah, I, I may even butchered how you explain that anyway. But pruning is very important. And I remember kind of the first time getting out my, and this is what we call ours, Cindy Loppers. Okay. All right. So we get our, out our, our Cindy Loppers to do kind of branches or whatever. And I'm, I, for me, never having done that, I'm like, is this going to kill the thing? Is this really good? And I begin, no. It's best for that. And for you and me, it can be incredibly painful. But it reminds us God loves us, God is doing something in our lives, and he wants to transform us. And so pruning is a promise, a promise for us. It's part of God's design. All right. 
Because then what happens then? It produces more fruit. Let's move on. Now we're going to talk about what a much fruit life looks like. I'm going to go through a list now. And again, this I'm doing kind of a fly over this passage, so I'm not doing it full justice for everything, but I want to cover a number of things specifically. So let's talk about what a much fruit life looks like from this passage. Number one is this, effective prayer. Look at this, verses 7 and 16. In verse 7 it says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 16. He says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Do you hear that promise? It's pretty amazing when you think about that the reality is that God's invited us into a relationship whereby we abide with him and his words abide in us and we ask things and we see answers to prayer. I don't know if that's a foreign concept or not to you. To see that you would ask God things and he would move and work in ways that we could not conceive, we could not manufacture on our own. But think about a prayer life that sees on a regular basis God answer prayer. I don't know if there's anything that strengthens somebody's faith more than discerning that God wants you to ask for something. You pray for it, and it happens. That's the invitation that God makes for every one of us in this room. Now, There's a process in that. There is a relationship with God abiding. There is his words continually transforming us, shaping us, molding us, helping our minds to think the way God thinks, wanting his will, but then the invitation that we then could ask God for things and he would bring them about. That's amazing. Amazing, imagine you being someone who sees that happen on a regular basis. I think about this too. Imagine you being the person that other people come up to and say, hey, will you pray for me for this? Because you have the reputation of being someone who prays and mountains move. That's not exclusively offered to a few. That's offered to you. I got a quote we're going to put up on the screen from Andrew Murray from his book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. He says this, And of all the traits of a life like Christ, there is none higher and more glorious than conformity to him in the work that now engages him without ceasing in the Father's presence. In other words, we get to do the same things that Jesus is doing right now. His all-prevailing intercession. Did you know? Jesus is interceding for you right now. The more we abide in him and grow unto his likeness, will his priestly life work in us mightily, and our life becomes what his is, a life that ever pleads and prevails for men. What an invitation. 
that Jesus makes, the design he has for us to abide in him so that we would be people to ask for things that he intends to do that have eternal impact in the lives of people that we love. Isn't that amazing? Okay, let's go on. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. A much fruit life glorifies God. That is our highest calling. To shine the spotlight on God. To, to show to other people how good he is, how glorious is he is, how mighty he is, how holy he is, how loving he is. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We get a chance to do that, to be able to participate in that. He goes on in that same verse, and, to, and so prove to be my disciples. This idea that a much fruit life proves that we are his followers. I can think of no greater compliment probably than someone to say, hey, you remind me of Jesus. Imagine someone saying that to you. This end of the, by the end of this year, you have so walked so close with the Lord. You've been so abiding in him through his word and prayer that somebody goes, hey, that reminded me of Jesus. Let me say it again. That is not an offer for few people. That's an offer for everybody in this room. Next, verse 10, okay? Verse 10 says this. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. A much fruit life keeps his commandments, keeps Jesus' commandments. Now, he doesn't get specific right here, Okay? And so the context will tell us that part of that commandment is got a m- number of things involved in that. Remember, these are his disciples. They're called to live like him. He's been out preaching. He's been sharing the gospel. He's been doing all these things, and they're certainly going to be called to that as well. So for us to keep his commandments, we must be people who are bringing the gospel to others. There's, n- there's no doubt about that. But then he gets really specific in verses 12 through 14, and then in 17. He's really specific. He says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another, okay, love one another, all right, we kind of got that. But then he goes, as I have loved you. In other words, the example for love that we have for one another should be in line with how Jesus has loved them. Then he goes specifically in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And then verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. A much fruit life keeps his commandments and specifically demonstrates sacrificial love. That's what his command's about, sacrificial love. By the way, sacrificial love, that's one of our values. Actually, we're mentioning three today. The Word of God, that's biblical truth. Prayerful dependency, that's prayer. Sacrificial love, that's three. So, what does sacrificial love look like in the body of Christ? It means giving for other people. 
It's putting them first. It's thinking them before I think of myself. It's sacrifice. It's doing the things that I wouldn't necessarily do. The things that are going to cost me something. That's what it looks like. And then look what this promise is in verse 11. A much fruit life has joy. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We get to be filled with joy. We get to experience God doing his thing. All right. I got two things, more things I want to talk about. So here we go. Number two is this, how abiding reminds us of our dependence. Let's go back to four and five because conceptually this is what we need to grab a hold of. This whole analogy is built around this idea that we cannot live the kind of life that we are designed to live apart from Christ. And so he says in verse four and five, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from you, Excuse me, apart from me, you can do nothing. This whole time that I've been talking about what a much fruit life is, that can be like absolutely overwhelming, okay? But this is a great reminder in this concept of abiding. It reminds us of our dependence, and this is what it reminds us of. There's things that we can do, and there's things that only God can do. So, I think this is a great reminder of this. Up on the screen, you'll see this. What is our responsibility? Faithfulness. What's God's responsibility? Fruitfulness. We cannot muster that fruit on our own. We can't produce that on our own. We've got to be connected to the vine. That's where that imagery comes back in once again. Connected to the vine, remain in the vine. That's the way he will fill us and enable us to bear much fruit. All this is a work of God that he invites us to participate in through us. All right. Okay, that was the second point. That was fast, wasn't it? The third one would be almost as fast. How abiding becomes who you are. How does abiding in Christ simply become who you are? quote from Ian e. Bounds. It's going to be up on the screen in a second here. Let me read that to you. The men who have most fully illustrated Christ in, char- in their character and have most powerfully affected the world for him have been men who spent so much time with God as to make it a notable feature of their lives. It's who they are. It's what they give themselves to in ways that we see God doing an amazing work in us and through us. So abide, the word abide appears three, sorry, 11 times in this passage. It's referenced a couple more times. It's described as abide in me, abide in my word, and abide in my love. Six times abide in me. One time abide in my word. Two times abide in my love. 
I think the six times is because he's just reinforcing this idea. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, remain in me, continue in me, be in me, whatever. It's a great reminder, this idea that we're in relationship with one another, right? Maybe the best illustration of this type of relationship that God's talking about here on earth is a husband and wife. For a husband and wife to have an intimate relationship, they must communicate. And some of the guys are going, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I'm just kidding. Of course. How many times have you wondered what your spouse is thinking? Like, what are they thinking? I know, sometimes you go, are they thinking? Okay. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But this idea of what are they thinking, what's, what's going on inside, how do I get to know them better? It's a two-way street. It's a two-way communication. It's easy for us to see, okay, if God is here and we are here, what is the, the most, the clearest way, the absolute, always truthful way that God communicates to us? It's his word. What's the, the best way for us to communicate with him? It's prayer. It's for prayer. That's why when you think about, here, did you know that, that the disciples come to Jesus and only once do they ask him to teach them something? Teach us to, you know what it is? It's teach us to pray. Why is that? It's because when they're looking for Jesus, he's off somewhere praying. Runs up to a mountain, he's praying. He's off to a desolate place. He's praying. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He is practicing this idea of intimacy with the Father, of remaining in him, abiding with the Father. And that's why, you know, even though specifically doesn't say this, I think this is so important for us to grab a hold of. When he talks about abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. There's this importance of prayer, continuous prayer with him. Secondly, he does mention this in verse 7. He mentioned it one time, how critical it is that if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. My words abide in you. We have to be people of the word. We just got to know the word. That's how we know God. That's how we know him, understand him, comprehend him, grow in him, be transformed by him. Our minds renewed by him over and over again. It must be a part of who we are, abiding in Christ and abiding in his word. That's why we want to say over and over again, this year we will prompt you, we'll encourage you, we will equip you, we will model to you, we will... Say it over and over again. Let's be a church that is abiding in Christ through his word and prayer. Last but not least, though, there's one more aspect of abiding in him that's mentioned twice. It's found in verse 9. He says, that the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Do you hear that? I think that probably... As we spend time with God, reading his word and, and prayer, we just kind of come back to this, this recognition that, that God has done this amazing work through his son, Jesus. He has demonstrated his love for us. 
He's made us his. He has promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised his love will never fail over and over again. And with that confidence and assurance about his love and abiding his love, boy, how different kind of lives we can live. It's, it's why we almost every single week come back to taking communion because it always comes back to the gospel which we're reminded is driven by God's love for the world that while we're yet sinners Christ died for us so let's abide in his love right now let's remember what he has done for us through his son Jesus on the cross I invite you to take some time the band's going to come up here and in the timing that you need to process, to abide in his love, to remember who he is and what he's done for us. You know, the elements are there to help us remember his body broken, the cracker, his blood shared. We dip it in the cup and take it. God has loved us in his son and has made us his. That is reason to celebrate. That is reason to worship. Let's pray. Grateful Father, that we don't have any doubt. We need not doubt at all, God, of how much you love us. And as a loving Father, you welcome us. You invite us to hang out with you. And you've made the way through your son Jesus, his death on the cross, and the assurance that we have in his resurrection that what he's done has been finished, accomplished for us. Father, I pray today, as each one of us go and take the elements of communion, we would have a great certainty of your love. We could just simply rest, remain, abide in that love. We ask in Christ's name, amen. As you take the elements today, we've had a little glitch with one of our songs here, so you're not going to see any lyrics for this song, but if you just take this time as uh, time, maybe